I'd like to assure you all that the rapture has not taken place. We have over 40 women on a retreat somewhere and a monsoon going on, so that, ex <laughs> that explains things. Today I'm starting a series of sermons, three sermons on heaven. The sermon today is on why heaven is important for us living here and now. The second sermon actually is what is heaven like? What is it like in heaven right now? And the third sermon is heaven 2.0. What happens when heaven comes to earth and there is the final resurrection and the lion lays down with the lamb? So there's three sermons. I'm going to read from Philippians 1, 20 through 26. This is Paul writing, actually from a prison cell. And he talks about his hope and he talks about heaven. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. Turns out it was both. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. We live in a civilization, Western civilization, that is death-denying. It used to be that death was seen as a normal, natural part of life. People died in homes instead of hospitals. People had to witness it. Children watched as grandparents passed on. Awareness of death was inescapable. On top of that, we live in a society that doesn't really want to know anymore what is on the other side of the grave. We've turned the concepts of the afterlife into made-up, pink, fuzzy euphemisms that, that really say nothing. For instance, when the great golfer Arnold Palmer died this past year, he was envisioned. People after person got up and talked about how Arnie was playing golf in heaven. He was playing with, you know, uh, Ike. Eisen, you know, with Eisenhower, the president, who, you know, they, they were good friends. I want you to know today that there is no golf in heaven. Golf is an eternal punishment reserved for the lost, as is Saturday night at Chuck E. Cheese uh, when there are shootings and other things. Anyway, a good place to take the kids. You, you see, the Chuck E. Cheese and golf both promise fun but in the end, your disappointment and live in torment. <laughs> oh, and by the way, if I die and I wake up in a general business session at the General Assembly of the Brethren in Christ Church, I also know I'm in hell too. <laughs> Theology has gotten very fuzzy. These, oh, come on, you know it's true. Anyway, <laughs> theology has gotten very fuzzy these days about heaven. You know, I, I, there are people out there in our culture who not only are not Christians, you know, they're not anything, and they say they believe in heaven, 
but not God. How, how do you come up with that theology? What's heaven supposed to be about? Who made heaven? We don't know, but we're going there. Most in our society, by the way, simply believe everyone is going to heaven, including a lot of people in church. A lot of Christians think everyone's going to heaven. Of course, we have atheists who say there's no heaven or no, no soul to go there because we are nothing but meaningless space dust, and our existence has no higher purpose than trying to get as much pleasure out of this world as we can get. But what concerns me most is what I heard a young lady tell me last year. She said, I don't believe in hell, and heaven is boring. This is from a person I considered a committed Christian. And by the way, a lot of Christians feel that way. The implication of that statement, by the way, is staggering. That means millions of Christians, consciously or unconsciously, believe that the stuff worth living for is right in front of us, down here. So you better get it now. By the way, that sounds awful lot like atheists, doesn't it? The same philosophy? The real fun, the real ecstasy, the real pleasure, the real adventure is in this life, not the next one. And if you believe that the really good stuff is down here in this fallen world then you inevitably will build your life around attaining the really good stuff in this fallen world. I think that's part of the reason why we idolize sex in our culture, in Western culture, because it delivers the highest form of natural ecstasy. Heaven can't compete with sex, can it? We give ourselves, by the way, next Sunday I'll tell you why it can. Never mind, I'm going <laughs> to... And by the way, we give ourselves to drug and booze and all kinds of hedonism. Why? Because you need to get your fun out of your system before you go to heaven and are bored stiff in an eternal church service up there. The material stuff of this world and the houses we build here will give us more joy than Jesus' condos up there. At least, won't they? If you don't understand what heaven is really like, you inevitably will give your life to the scraps of this world. It is inevitable. And a lot of people don't realize what they're doing. They're just going through the motions. But deep down inside, they have believed Satan's lie that really, if you want to have, have fun, you better get it here. Satan and the powers and principalities, by the way, see a person who thinks like that as eminently seducible. Like Esau, we end up settling, selling our true birthright for a mess of this fallen world's materialism and pottage. The old black spiritual, this world is not my home, seems incomprehensible to these, in these days to millions of Christians who live for this world, not the next one. In today's text, Paul tells us that there is no comparison between this world as we know it and the one to come. Paul says, if I could go to heaven right now, I'd do it in a New York minute. Somebody asked me after the last sermon, what's a New York minute? That means a second or two. New Yorkers are in a hurry. Why? Because Paul tells us where Christ is, is far better than any place else on this planet. The only thing keeping me here, Paul says, is my love for you, the church, and Christ's mission for me that is not over here. Other than that, he says, the choice is easy. 
To live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul thought it was vital that we have some idea about heaven, some idea about what awaits us on the other side of the grave. Paul's language in today's text indicates an immediate departure when we die of our souls directly into the presence of God, if you are a believer. Now, some feel that what happens is death. at death is that the, when the body's buried, we go into a deep sleep and we do not get resurrected, you know, and, and we do not become conscious again until the final resurrection when Jesus brings heaven to earth. I don't interpret scripture that way. Revelation 6 refers to the souls of martyrs who cry out for justice. And that is before Jesus returns. And that is not sleep, that is prayer. Moses and Elijah appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus in Jesus' lifetime. They weren't sleeping. The Old Testament talks about the prophet Samuel coming back from the grave and people thought he was an angel. Jesus told the criminal dying beside him on a cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, today you will go to sleep. And how come the cloud of witnesses, Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. How can they be witnessing us if they're all snoozing? Added to scriptural evidence is what sociologists call near-death experiences. And out of the hundreds of near-death experiences I've read about, no one mentions dying and then finding themselves lying on a Sealy posturepedic mattress. The typical near-death experience goes like this, by the way. A person dies, and as they die, their spirit becomes separated from their body. They often can witness what's going on in a, a operating room or, or at a car wreck or whatever, but they see their body lying there. And then they hear a noise, and they find themselves moving through a dark tunnel at incredible speed. They, at the end of that tunnel, encounter the spirits of relatives and friends who have gone on before them waiting for them. And after that, some say they see a being of light that appears to surround them and saturate them with warmth and love. The deceased then see, often at that point, their whole life before them as if they are being called upon to review it. Time is condensed, and this person feels as if they are living the past and the present and the future at the same time. That's timelessness. And then the person who died inevitably reaches a barrier, a point of no return. And sometimes the person is given a choice. You can come into heaven and stay, or you can go back. And sometimes people, because of unfinished business, choose to go back. And sometimes they're simply told, you don't have a choice. You have to go back. These experiences, by the way, are universal. Regardless of people's religion, regardless of people's nation or nationality, regardless of people's culture, now, they may, because of their religion or their conditioning, not label what we would label some of this experience. In other words, the being of light, a Jew might call that person uh, Yahweh or, or an angel. Or a Muslim might call that being of light Allah. But we know who that being of light really, truly is, don't we? That's a big amen. Anyway... I, uh, Mary Neal is an orthopedic surgeon. 
She started, studied at UCLA School of Medicine, and she completed her residency at Southern Cal, and she is trained as a spinal surgeon. She's the former director of spine surgery at the University of Southern California and is the founding partner of Orthopedic Associates in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. In 1999, this brilliant doctor was rafting in the Los Rios region of Southern Chile when she drowned in a kayak accident. While cascading down a waterfall, her kayak began, became pinned at the bottom of that waterfall and she was immediately and completely submerged. And despite the rescue efforts of her companions, Mary was underwater for more than 10 minutes. And when they came out, it took at least five or 10 more minutes to try to resuscitate her. In other words, she was dead. And she said, as the water was flowing over her at the bottom of the waterfall, her body became limp. And, and so limp that she was able to be washed out of the kayak, get back into the river. And she says, this is what happened. At the moment my body was released and began to tumble, she said, I felt a pop. It felt as if I had finally shaken off my heavy outer layer, freeing my soul. I rose up and out of the river. And when my soul broke through the surface of the water, I encountered a group of 15 to 20 souls who greeted me with the most overwhelming joy I have ever experienced and could ever imagine. It was joy at an unadulterated core level. This welcoming committee seemed to be wildly cheering for me as I approached the finish line. He said, I knew each of, she said, I knew each of them well. I knew that the Lord had sent them. I knew that I had known them for all of my existence. I was a part of them, and I knew they were sent to guide me across the divide of time and dimension that separates our world from God's. They appeared as formed shapes. They looked like humans, but not with the absolute and distinct edges of the former physical bodies we have on earth. Their edges were blurred as each spiritual being was dazzling and radiant. Their presence engulfed all of my senses as though I could see, hear, feel, smell, and taste them all at once. We did not speak, per se, using our mouths, but easily communicated in a very pure form. We simultaneously communicated our thoughts and emotions and understood each other perfectly, even though we did not use language. It was complete telepathy going on. He said, my, she said, my arrival was joyously celebrated, and a feeling of absolute love was palpable as these spiritual beings and I hugged, danced, greeted one another. The intensity, depth, and purity of these feelings and sensations were far greater than I could ever describe with words and far greater than anything I have ever experienced on planet Earth. God's world, God's heaven, is exponentially more colorful and intense than I can describe. It was as though I was experiencing an explosion of love and an explosion of joy in their absolute unadulterated, unadulterated essence. The only thing I can begin to compare this difference to is television. When you compare images on an old-style black-and-white cathode ray tube television screen to the new ones on new high-definition color television, the high-definition images are almost painfully crisp and clear in their relative brilliance and clarity. 
Regardless, it is impossible for me to adequately describe what I saw and felt. When I try to recount my experiences now, the description feels very pale. He, she said, I feel as though I'm trying to describe a three-dimensional experience while living in a two-dimensional world. The appropriate words, descriptions, and concepts don't even exist in our current language. Does that sound good to you? That is what is waiting for us as soon as we go to the other side. When I die, I expect there will be a welcoming committee for me just like that and a welcoming committee for you just like that when you die. I expect when I die to see my father, to see my father as the man God created him to be, to see my father whole and well and non-alcoholic and non-abusive and that he will have nothing but love flowing through him and I expect him to be humble because he knows he got there by pure grace. I joke sometimes, I think, you know, uh, he doesn't have many of the rewards that we're going to get for serving Jesus. He's just going to be in the corner over there, but it's still going to be great. And I'll see a mom who can give from her, the core of her heart what she, what she couldn't give when I grew up. And I will see Johnny, my best friend in grade school and high school and college, who drank himself to death and who I thought was lost forever and, who in, and whose image one night in a dream the Lord showed me that Johnny was in heaven waiting too. I can't wait to, to get near him and see what his story was. And I think about my spiritual mother's. Benny Simpson and, and, and Pearl Ball and Ruth Decker, the women who, when I got saved at 19, these women, these Presbyterian women, just surrounded me with prayer and surrounded me with encouragement. You know, and they were there for me, and they prayed for me. And guess what? They've been dead for decades, and they're still praying for me. And I expect them to be there. And I, I, you know, I expect Lindsay and Rachel, Kim's mom and dad, who loved me and I love dearly, they will be there waiting for us. And my crazy granny will be there. My paranoid, pistol-packing grandmother who said, don't come around at night or I'll kill you. <laughs> she will be there clothed and in her right mind. Hallelujah. And my poor grandfather who married her. <laughs> Actually, he was the the third man who married her, she killed the other two, and she took him down too by the end. He never thought, he never thought much of me. He didn't think I would ever make something of my life. By the way, my, my grandfather, Walrath, was one of the more remarkable people I ever knew. He was a highly successful businessman, and at age, and he had nothing to do with Jesus or religion, and at age 75, Jesus saved him. And in the first year, he read the Bible through three times at 75. He taught himself a year later Spanish and took a trip around the world by himself. And he put one of my friends through Christian college. And he gave generously. He, he had made a lot of money, and he'd held on to it. There's a reason he was wealthy. But at the end of his life, he was generous. His heart was opened up. But he never, he didn't like me because, you know, 
I guess I was related to his wife. But anyway, <laughs> but, you know, he, he didn't think much. That, that, you know, he, he kind of thought I, will, I would never make anything of myself. What, what do you think now, old man? <laughs> but as I've thought about the welcoming committee that I believe I will see when I cross over, I hadn't thought about this for years. But I think I will meet, for the first time, my older brother, who was stillborn. He was doing well, and some, some, at some point in the last trimester, they lost a heartbeat. And in those days, you just went on and had the baby. My parents took me to his grave in Ararat, Virginia. They never named him. He was born perfect physically. They never knew what killed him. The tombstone simply said at this small country place, uh, cemetery, baby Dalton. When I get to heaven, I'm going to get to see a relative who was raised in heaven. I'm going to get to see a man not named by his parents, but a man named by Jesus who has his name written on his hand. In my first moments in heaven, I am going to meet the brother I never knew, who, and, and I will know his name and his personality and his heart instantaneously, and we will get to spend eternity together. And I know this too. He will tell me of the years he watched me from the cloud of witnesses, and he prayed for me, and he rooted for me, even though I never gave him a second thought because, you know, it's almost as if he never existed. You all have people that you have lost, people you care for and love deeply. You know, there are some people you lose, especially, you know, what I found is probably the hardest thing for a human being to lose is their children or one of their children. There are some things that happen that the whole, even with Jesus' help in this world, the whole is never filled in. The ache never quite goes away. There are people that, spouses, that, that you were married to for over 50 years, and they were wonderful. I still remember Vida Yoder, you know, after Leroy, her husband, they'd had the greatest love affair I've ever seen. They loved each other so, so, so much. And when he died, she said, will he know me when I come? And I said, how could he ever forget you? Heaven, in heaven, love is celebrated, not obliterated. But she was never the same. She could never fill the hole that was in her heart when Leroy died. And one day, one day, there is going to be a family reunion. One day, there's going to be a welcoming committee. One day, those holes will be filled and those aches will be healed. And one day, we are going to come back to people who we love more than our own lives and we are going to embrace in the, in the, in the greatest family reunion you can ever experience. That, and by the way, that's just getting through the front door of heaven. I'm not telling you about heaven. I'm just telling you about how you get on the steps. Parenthetically, there's nothing in science 
to refute what I'm telling you today. Most physicists now believe that there are at least now 11 dimensions other than the one we're living in now. It's called M-theory or string theory. And in one, those 11 dimensions, according to the calculations of these physicists, at least one of these dimensions, after it was computed, does not have time operating in it. Did you hear that? There is a timeless dimension, according to scientists. In fact, all these other dimensions may operate by different laws of physics than ours. And many physicists now believe that we are not just a universe, we are a multiverse. We are just one of many universes in this plane. In fact, trillions. Each universe with perhaps their own separate laws and how they function. As one writer put it, atheists can no longer ridicule as unscientific the idea of eternal places beyond time or of invisible matter that isn't like our matter or of realms that have their own laws and their own modes of being. Modern science has proven itself, and I love what he writes here, not the foe of religious belief, but an unexpected ally. And this kills some scientists who are atheists. They hate that what they're discovering leaves room for Christian beliefs. And one of the great ironies going on in Christianity is that many liberal theologians who gut the Bible of its supernatural elements and who said that Jesus couldn't have, all those miracles in the Bible couldn't have happened, are using old, antiquated science. In the name of being modern and scientific, they're using outdated stuff. They're using science most scientists have moved beyond. In other words, they are modernists who really aren't modern at all. They are, in the name of science, disqualifying miracles. Something that most 21st century science people would allow for because they are saying this universe is bigger, stranger, more exotic, more vast, with all kinds of stuff. Let me tell you something. We don't know 95% of the stuff that's in this universe. There is something called dark matter that is about 15 to 20% of the universe. We don't have a clue what it is. And there's something called dark energy that is 70 to 75% of the universe, and we don't have a clue what that is. That means we are only familiar with 5% of the physical universe as we know it now. I don't know. That gets me excited. I'm sorry. I... I turned into Bill Nye, the science guy. Anyway, never goes well in a sermon when you teach science. <laughs> there are all kinds of things beyond our current experience and our current science that says anything is possible. Why does all this matter? Because what we believe about heaven profoundly affects how we live down here. Because, folks, a big part of our journey is we live by hope. We live by hope. We need to know that our pain in this world will not last forever. We need to know that what is now crooked will one day be straightened out. We need to know that what is now broken will be fixed. The fall of the first Adam is not the final verdict for the human race. The persecution of the righteous by evil does not have the final word. We need to know this 
so we can persevere. We need to know this so that we will not lose hope. It will all be worth it one day. All of it. Justice will roll down like a mighty river. And those who never heard the cheers of men one day will hear the cheers of angels. Hallelujah. The small will be great. The meek will inherit the earth. The forgotten will be remembered. The unnoticed adored and embraced. The faithful honored. Sin and evil's power has a time limit. The clock is ticking and it's on our side, not evil's side. One day, folks, there will be no more war. One day there will be no more KKK or neo-Nazis or corrupt politicians. One day there will be no more disease. One day, and we are living for that day. People who suffered under evil governments will one day run those governments as heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Evil rulers may have had their day, but a new day is coming. What is wrong will be made right. Randy Alcorn said that whenever I spend time with severely handicapped people, physically, mentally, or both, I'm keenly aware of how wonderful it will be to have resurrected bodies. My friend David O'Brien, he said, is a brilliant man trapped in a body that groans for redemption. His cerebral palsy will be gone the moment he leaves this world for the present heaven. But the biggest treat will be his resurrection when he will have a new body forever free of disease. He said, I picture David never having to repeat himself because people can't understand his slurred speech. I see him running through fields in the new heaven. I'm looking forward to running beside him. Probably can't keep up with him. I often think, he says, of how paraplegics, quadriplegics, and people who have known constant pain will walk, run, jump, and laugh in heaven. Believers who are now blind, who have never had any sight, will gawk at heaven's wonders and take it all in. What a special pleasure for them. Joni Erickson Tata, a quadriplegic, says, I can still hardly believe it. I with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope this gives someone who is brain, who is, who is cerebral palsied or spinal cord injured like me, or someone who is brain injured or who has multiple sclerosis? Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive or schizophrenic. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, new minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Johnny tells us, speaking to a class of mentally handicapped Christians, she has her own organization who reaches out to all kinds of people like that. And they thought it was great when she said she was going to get a new body. But they exploded in applause when she said, but you're going to get new minds. They cheered. We all should cheer for what is coming. This hope helps us persevere. It helps us overcome. It help gives us hope against hope in the face of disease and evil and suffering. As Johnny wrote, I haven't been cheated out of being a complete person. I'm just going through a 40-year delay, and God is with me even through that. Being glorified, 
I know the meaning of that now. It is the time after my death when I will be on my feet dancing. A trillion years of a resurrected body will be more than enough compensation for Johnny and what she is going through now. An IQ for eternity beyond any genius on this planet will be compensation for those with Down syndrome. You need to know this. There is no justice if there is no heaven. This world cannot and will not make things right. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. But he said, even up to the end, there will be wars and rumors of war. We're not going to fix it. We're called to do the best we can and follow him, but we're not going to fix it. Or, you know, there are other things like, like, you know, Jesus tells us to take care of the poor or help the poor, empower the poor. But the fact is, Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. We are called to be faithful to Jesus in representing the kingdom and kingdom values and following Jesus and helping many, as many people as we can. But we must never live under the illusion that we are going to fix world poverty. We don't until Jesus comes back. No, there is no justice if there is no heaven. You know, some of you, us, you know, when we are down, when we are struggling, when we are in pain and loss, we must never, ever count the final score down here. We must always remember, always remember that no matter how dark it gets, it's temporary. No matter how far down we go, we're coming back up some way, sometime, somehow. If we take heaven out of the equation, then we will be overwhelmed by the darkness of this world. We will lose. If you're going to have hope, it's going to be the hope that realizes that when things get fixed, it will be because Jesus comes back in his glory and he fixes them. This world cannot and will not make things right. But the next world will. Heaven must always be put in the equation when we struggle with what's going on now. Or else we will despair. You know, isn't that what the black spiritual said? This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, oh Lord, what will I do? But just as important as giving us hope and the belief in justice and things being right, made right, heaven helps us see what is really valuable now and what isn't. What is precious and what is, will rust or burn or decay. How many of you saw the movie Schindler's List? Well, that's good. Usually when I throw out a movie, it's only about six people. It makes me wonder about myself. I feel better now. Oscar Schindler, of course, was a man who lived through World War II and what the Nazis did in the Holocaust. He was a womanizer. He drank heavily. He belonged to the German Nazi party. But somewhere deep in his heart, 
Compassion for the condemned Jews of Krakow, Poland, started growing. The one Hitler sought to send to concentration camps, Schindler sought to save. He couldn't save them all, but he could save some, and he did what he could. What began as a factory for profit, a munitions factory, became a haven for 1,100 fortunate souls whose names found their way onto his list, Schindler's list of employees. Isaac Stern, his foreman, said that this list was absolute good because it gave life. By the way, Schindler's munition factory, as you remember in the movie, made lousy bombs and bullets. They sabotaged the Nazis. If you saw the movie, you'll remember how the story ends. With the defeat of the Nazis came the reversal of roles. Schindler would now be hunted, and the people who worked for him would now be free. As Oscar Schindler prepares to slip into the night, as he walks to his car, the factory workers line both sides of the road. They have come to thank the man who saved their lives. One of the Jews presents Schindler with a letter signed by all 1,100 people documenting what he did for them. He is also given a ring formed out of the gold extracted from the teeth of those people. Can you imagine having your, your uh, filling ripped out without Novocaine and it goes on and on and on till you have enough to make a gold ring? And on the carved, in the, in the ring was carved a verse from the Talmud that these 1,100 people gave Schindler. He who saves a single life saves the entire world. In that moment, in the brisk air of the Polish night, Schindler is surrounded by the liberated. Row after row of faces, husbands with wives, parents with children, they know what Schindler did for them. They will never forget. And in his last appearance in the movie, there in the presence of the survivors, he takes the letter signed by all 1,100 and he puts it in his coat. And then he accepts the ring and puts it on his finger and looks from face to face. And as he looks at those people for the last time, he begins to break down. He begins to cry. And he leans towards Isaac Stern, the factory foreman. And he says something in a low, choked-up voice and Stern can't quite hear him, so he asks him to repeat it. And he says loud enough for people around to hear, I could have done more. And then he gestures towards his car, a fine car, and he said, that would have released 10 prisoners. That would have saved 10 lives. And then the gold pin on his lapel, he said, I could have bribed Nazi officers to release at least two more of your people. And in that moment, Schindler's life is reduced to one value. Profit is forgotten. The factory doesn't matter. All the tears and tragedy of the nightmare are distilled into one truth for Schindler and the people there. The only truth that mattered was people. The only one thing that counted was saving lives. And when he looked at the faces of those people... He felt not joy 
initially. He felt regret. I could have given more. Why didn't I save more when I could have? When we get to heaven, that may be our one regret too. Why didn't I give more? Love more. Forgive more. Grace more. Why didn't I bless people more? Somehow God's, one of God's values infiltrated Schindler's heart. We are a part of the kingdom of heaven that is already invading this world. Jesus taught us the kingdom is here. It is now. It is in us. Heaven is coming. Hallelujah. And we know that it broke into this world 2,000 years ago. And we know it cannot be stopped. And so we are to live with that reality always before us. No matter what we sacrifice now, we will get something far greater than. Even if, if we are faithful now, no matter what it costs us, we know one day we will rule with Him. We can give generously and sacrificially now, realizing that what we give in Christ's name stores up far greater treasures in heaven than any this world can give. As C.S. Lewis so astutely observed, it's not an exact quote, but I remember the gist of it, that the people who have had the greatest impact for good in this world are the people who have set their minds and hopes on the next one. We live in the present but we live for the future and all that it means. C.S. Lewis in his book, Paralandra writes, a man who has been to another world does not come back unchanged. A man or woman who truly realizes what is coming cannot remain unchanged either. We must start working for the world to come. Knowing that our work is not in vain, knowing that whatever we start in His name, He will complete it. This world isn't going to burn up. It's going to be purified and made whole. And we get to be a part of it. And so, live in hope. Work in hope. Obey in hope. Be faithful in hope. Because the most ordinary moment in heaven is greater than the most extraordinary moment you will ever experience in this life. Live for your real home. Live for your real treasure. Live for your real nature that God has placed in you. Live for the one who came, lived, died, was resurrected, who made it all possible. Heaven is coming. Heaven is coming. Make sure you are building your life around that. And make sure that no matter what you go through, heaven is still coming. Even if you go and you're in a bed for the rest of your life, remember, a new body is coming. No matter if you're depressed now, remember, joy, the joy of heaven is coming. No matter what there is that besets you, remember, heaven is going to fix it do not despair. That's what Paul said. We live in hope. We live in hope. 
always make heaven a part of the formula for your life. I'd like the worship team to come forward. I'd like the intercessors to come forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us an eternal perspective. Lord, help us to love the people in front of us, right in front of us. Help us to fight for justice. Help us, Lord, to implement kingdom values. And each of us has a different role in that and different gifts in that. But Lord, never let us give up because we know the end result. Whatever we have done in your name will last forever and you will complete it. Help us, Jesus. Help us to work that into our thoughts every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing and the altar's open?